Well, those of you who have come from overseas and have not been here before must be wondering what all these pumpkins are. <laughs> it has to do with the uh, holiday of Halloween. And I really didn't know too much about it, so somebody took some information off the internet of what the origins of the holiday were. Turns out that it really goes back to ancient Celtic times uh, in Western Europe, and at first it was uh, a holiday celebrating the transition from the harvest time to winter time. We can feel it in the air here. It is a transition time now, just to honor that cycle of nature. And then around the 9th or 10th century, it became associated with the Catholic holiday uh, of All Souls Day. It's like the, the church incorporated you know, the, the ancient holiday into its own rituals. And that was about purifying the spirits of the dead. There were a lot of uh, folk customs that grew up you know, during the Middle Ages some of which are these, what are called jack-o'-lanterns. Well, since the Dharma has come to the West, I think we should make it a Buddhist holiday. (laughs) And I thought it would be a good time to kind of illuminate the ghosts and the goblins of our own minds. You know, so we can really begin to bring some light to the shadow side. Um... It might help us see that all the thoughts and emotions that seem so weighty are really just the play of kids in Halloween costumes. And they really don't have much more essential nature than that. So that's the pumpkins. The question that I would like to consider this evening is one that is probably the most basic question of our lives. Can we be happy? Is there a way to be happy in our lives? There are two different but interrelated teachings that address this question. It is the Buddha's response to this question. And that, are, that is the teachings of karma and the teachings of emptiness. The Dalai Lama said something very interesting about these two aspects. He said that if there were a choice, if we had to make a choice between emphasizing teachings of karma or emptiness, that he thinks it's more beneficial to emphasize karma. And that was surprising to me since the understanding of emptiness is so central to the teachings of Buddhism and liberation. But he went on to say that often we can hear teachings on emptiness and either intellectualize them or have just a partial grasp 
And if we don't have a very good, deep, solid, grounded understanding of the law of karma, we get into trouble. But it's really understanding karma that grounds us very pragmatically in our lives with what brings happiness and what brings suffering to us. So tonight I'd like to emphasize that side of things. The possibility for happiness, both individually for each one of us, and also globally, what will bring happiness or peace to this earth, is the understanding that all of our lives unfold from an origin in the mind. It all begins in the mind. And the Buddha said this very directly in the first two verses of the Dhammapada. He said, the mind is the forerunner of all things. If we speak or we act with an impure mind, suffering follows like the wheel of the ox cart follows the foot of the ox. Suffering follows inexorably from actions of speech, of body, of mind, when they're impure, unwholesome, unskillful. He said, mind is the forerunner of all things. When we speak or act with a pure mind, with a skillful mind, with a wholesome mind, happiness follows like a shadow that never leaves. So it's a very clear directive. What we need to do to bring happiness to ourselves and to the world. We need to explore and investigate the nature and the workings of this mind. Mind is the forerunner of all things. Well, what aspects, what is the the nature of the mind, the workings of the mind that bring about suffering and bring about happiness. We talked some about this earlier. There's the basic quality or function of consciousness, the simple knowing, that which knows, knows a sight, knows a sound, knows a smell. The knowing itself is pure, there's no problem simply in the knowing. But along with the knowing arise a whole constellation, changing constellation, of different mental states. And these mental states are continually conditioning and reconditioning the patterns of our experience. Love, fear, anger, joy, concentration, mindfulness, delusion, ignorance, All of these are mental factors which condition or color the consciousness. And as you know from the intensive looking at your own minds, sometimes it feels like it's like a Star Wars of mental factors. You know, the skillful and the unskillful and bringing so many changes of feeling and mood and happiness and suffering 
even in the simplicity of just sitting and walking here. Meditation practice and also a wise attention in our lives. For those of you who will be leaving you know, in a couple of days, it's not only through this kind of intensive meditation, it's also through paying careful attention. In our lives, we can see for ourselves, if we're watching, if we're attentive, we can see for ourselves what mind states, what actions bring us suffering, which ones bring us happiness, bring us peace. And in this regard, it's no longer second-hand knowledge. It's no longer simply what we're reading in a book or hear what somebody says. We see for ourselves because we're observing, because we're investigating our own experience. It's really in the direct seeing in our lives, in our practice, what states lead to happiness, what states lead to suffering. When we see this directly for ourselves, it's the going from knowledge about something to wisdom. We go from an intellectual understanding to a direct perception. So the Buddha expressed this teaching of what leads to what. He expressed it very clearly in his teachings on the laws of karma, which, as most of you know, is the understanding that all of our volitional actions, all of our intentional actions, contain within themselves the power to bring about results. And this can be intentional actions of our body. It can be intentional actions in our speech. It can be intentional actions in our minds. Intention has the power to bring about a result. So what is intention or volition? And I'm using these words synonymously. Notice, and this becomes part of our investigation, notice carefully just when you're about to do something or about to say something. In that about-to moment, there is a gathering of energy, a kind of welling up of energy which initiates the action. There's a line from a poem by Dylan Thomas, which in some way captures for me the flavor of intention or volition. He wrote, The force that through the green fuse drives the flower. I don't know exactly what it means. (laughs) But somehow, it just, the force that through the green fuse drives the flower, it's like, somehow that life energy, you know, manifesting. 
intention of volition is like that. It's the gathering energy that initiates an action. Now, intention or volition is itself a neutral factor. It's not wholesome, it's not unwholesome. It can be used in the service of either. What volition or intention does, it simply organizes all the different mental states, all the elements of the body. It's sometimes called the general secretary of the mind. You know, it gathers the energy, it organizes the energy for a particular aim, to accomplish something. But even though it's neutral in terms of ethical value, this one small mental factor has huge power in our lives because contained within it, contained within this organizing principle, is the power to bring about certain results. Now just think about the potential of a seed. A seed may be something very, very small, and yet contained within it, given all the right conditions, a small seed can become a huge redwood tree. I mean, when you look at the seed, you would never imagine that it contained within it something so magnificent and so large. Well, intention is like that seed, given the right conditions, it brings about huge results in our lives. Now what determines the karmic result of these seeds, of these actions, that's contained within the intention, is the motivation associated with it. If the intention, which is neutral, is associated with wholesome mind states, with generosity, with love, with wisdom, with compassion, if the motivation is wholesome, the karmic fruit is happiness. If the motivation associated with any intention, again, in our body, in the speech of mind, the motivation associated with an intention is unwholesome, that is greed or hatred or ignorance or envy or jealousy or pride or any one of the defilements, so then the karmic fruit of that seed is suffering. There's a Tibetan saying which for me has had tremendous uh, Tremendous power and meaning because it simplifies the whole understanding of the law of karma and in one way it simplifies the activity of our lives. Where it says everything rests on the tip of motivation. Everything rests on the tip of motivation. 
when we want to look, when we want to see, is something going to bring happiness, is something going to bring suffering, it's not trying primarily to analyze the action, it's primarily to look at the motivation behind it. And that's a difficult and challenging task. Because often our motivations are not very clear. Or they may be mixed. It takes a lot of clarity, a lot of courage, and a lot of um, diligence to really look at and explore and understand the motives behind our actions. And yet that's the key. Everything rests on the tip of motivation. So if we want really to be happy in our lives, we need to do this. We need to look. So how can we understand how this teaching on the law of karma is working practically in our lives. So it's not just another Buddhist philosophical statement. You know, always the emphasis in our way of understanding is to bring the philosophy down to life. What does this mean in how we live? What does it mean in our own experience? We can understand karma and how it's working in our lives in a variety of ways, and I'd like to talk about several of them. We can experience it in terms of what is called present karma. That is the immediate effect of different mind states in our experience, how we feel when the mind is filled with love. How do we feel when the mind is filled with hatred or jealousy? What's the immediate fruit of those mind states? When the mind is generous, when it's stingy, when it's truthful, when it's dishonest. If we're looking, if we're not simply acting these habit patterns, we're not simply acting them out, but we actually stop and look, well, what... What is the immediate, the present karma of this state? We know. We know for ourselves. It's not theory at that point. We know what's suffering, and we know what's happiness, what's greater freedom. In this arena of present karma, we can also notice not only our own internal happiness barometer, we can also notice... How do people respond to us when we're, when we're experiencing these different states? If we're venting, if we're acting, I mean, the different emotions will come. The problem is when we invest in them, when we identify with them, how do people respond to us when we are simply venting an unskillful state you know, of anger or envy or jealousy, whatever it is? No, it's not that pleasant you know, to be around. And how do people respond to us, or how do we respond to others? You know, when people are acting out compassion, kindness, generosity, 
These are people we like to be with. So there's an immediate present karma that's very obvious when we pay attention. What's so astounding, really, is how infrequently we do pay attention. You know, how in, of course, here there's, there's lots of attention, but out in normal, everyday life, it's so easy just to get caught up you know, in one's patterns that even though it's the cause of happiness or suffering for us, we don't often just step back and see, well, what's going, in my, going on in my mind that's causing this? So this is the experience of present karma. Another arena for looking at how karma unfolds within us. This is very interesting. You've had many experiences of this on retreat. Retreat is really a, a prime time to explore this area. And that is the experience of how the mind retains impressions of everything we've done. It's all in there. You know, and we get quiet enough, it all begins to surface. And these actions, as they surface, become the source of either great happiness for us or great remorse. You know, if we're reflecting or skillful things come to mind, we feel a real delight. And if past unwholesome actions come to mind, we feel remorse, we feel regret. And it's amazing, even from years and years and years ago, things come up. Recently, I had a memory come. It was from 1967. I had just finished my time in the Peace Corps, and I was traveling back. Um, But I stopped in India and Nepal on the way back. And in Nepal, I went up to this hill station called Nagarkot. And it's the place where you can view Mount Everest. You know, it's, like, it's a day's walk from Kathmandu. I didn't tell the story, did I? <laughs> okay. <laughs> So I'm hiking up to Nagarkot, and at that now it's a big tourist spot, and there's, there's a lot of tourist activity. But in 1967, it was not. There was only a like a very primitive um, shelter. You know, it was really almost like a lean-to or a very primitive cabin. It was just one big room with some cots, and there were you know a group of us who had walked up. So we were watching you know, Mount Everest, and then the sun was going down. It got cold you know, when the sun went down, so we went to sleep quite early, and it was pretty cold. And the cots all had uh, two blankets, two thin blankets on them. You know, so we had some food, got into bed, and I was just lying there, and it was really cold. And I thought, boy, this is going to be a long night. And it was very hard for me to sleep and and then, I don't know, it must have been about midnight. You're another traveler. I don't know where he was coming from. 
but he came in. And then the, the caretaker, you know, of the cabin, uh, as I said, each of, the, each of the cots had two blankets on them, but for this, that empty bed where the traveler came, there was only one blanket. And so the, the caretaker said, does anybody have an extra blanket on their cot? You can see where this is going. <laughs> so I kind of checked, and sure enough, there were three blankets on my cot. I was really cold. <laughs> and it's like 35 years later, I can still remember the rationalization in my mind. You know, where, well, I didn't ask for it. You know, it was just here. You know, and when that comes up, <laughs> what were you thinking? <laughs> but just that desire, you know, kind of greedy desire for comfort, uh, really was the cause of a very unskillful action, or moderately unskillful action. And it was just amazing to me, you know, this happened in 1967, and... Psh- there it was, full-blown in my mind, going over this. And of course, feeling terrible. Well, that's just one tiny little thing. All of our lives are in there. You know? And as you've seen, I'm sure, as you said, as we get quieter, things come up from many different layers of our lives. And we experience, in this level, the karmic fruit of it. You know, when it's good actions that come to mind, we feel good, we feel happy. And when it's unskillful actions, we feel remorse. We suffer. Sometimes what comes up are not necessarily specific actions that we've done but internalized emotions from experiences that we may have gone through. A friend of mine, was, um, who's now a Dharma teacher, was a medic during the Vietnam War. And when he came back, and when he came back, he was just experiencing all of these nightmares, you know, all of the images and the horrible feelings that he had had while he was there. And sometime after that was in the early 70s when he came to his first retreat. And on the retreat, all of these feeling, intense, intense feelings and images and, you know, of grief and anger and rage and everything that had been internalized from the time that he was there started surfacing. And it was amazing, and this is the power of the practice, that it really is a purifying of all of these impressions, whether it's our own individual actions that we've done. You know, they come up and we feel either the happiness or the suffering associated with them, or the internalized emotions from experiences that we've been through. It all comes up and it surfaces And if we can bring some wise attention to it, some awareness to it, they slowly wash through. 
And it was interesting with this friend who had been in Vietnam, after the first retreat, he had no more nightmares. It was completely gone. And it was it was really quite amazing. Really learning how to let them wash through. Even the way our practice unfolds is a karmic fruit. And this is also, I think, helpful. Um, there are basically four kinds of practice you know, in the way that it unfolds. This slow practice, slow progress with a lot of pain. This slow progress without much pain, with ease. This quick progress with a lot of pain. And then this very rare event (laughs) of quick progress with no pain. (laughs) Well, it was encouraging for me to kind of hear that, you know, as I was slogging through, you know, day after day, the same old stuff coming up and thinking, boy, you know, and working with the pain in the knee and the pain in the back. But when I understood it, it was just as, well, this is just karmic unfolding. You know, and that depending on different of our past actions, it will happen one way or another. And it depersonalized it. It just made it, it's all workable. And it's all simply the way the patterns are unfolding. And in the depersonalizing of it, it was much easier to settle back and simply be with it as it was. So I hope it has that effect on you as well, hearing that. It's just conditions playing themselves out. So we understand karma, we can experience it present karma, how we feel in the moment, how people respond to us. We experience karma in terms of past impressions coming to the surface, creating either happiness or remorse, regret. We understand the unfolding of our practice as a karmic unfolding. We can also see karma as the development of personality. It's like the mind develops certain habits and patterns. Through repeated action, through habitual actions, we create patterns, and this is the development of our personality. You know, in the Buddhist psychology, there are the three personality types, which probably different people have alluded to, the greedy type, the angry type, and the deluded type. And you may have noticed that in the teaching collective, all types are well represented. <laughs> so you're getting the full spectrum. And again, I, of course, each one has a positive side. You know, there's a positive side to greed, which is faith. There's a pro- positive side to the angry type, which is discriminating wisdom. And the positive side to delusion is equanimity. But it's more fun to talk about <laughs> the greedy type, the angry type, and the deluded type. And again, what makes it helpful of seeing it in this way is that it takes the self out of it. It's 
just, okay, this is the propensity of the mind that has come about through the repetition of certain actions. Every time we act in a certain way, whether it's a small action or a big action, we are strengthening that particular mental quality. So in everything we do, we're practicing. The question then is, what are we practicing? You know, are we practicing those states that bring us happiness? Or are we practicing those states that bring us suffering? Because they will develop. I just want to contrast two different habitual types to, to illustrate the different potentials. I have one friend who, whenever you, off, or often when you say something to him, you know, about uh, a mutual acquaintance, he will just go and say to that other person exactly what you said. <laughs> Even when you ask him not to. So he just does this. I mean, you can count on it. <laughs> so it's not a very trustworthy quality. <laughs> you know, it's just like causing trouble. You know, okay, how, how can I cause trouble here? And it's become such a pattern that he doesn't even realize it. You know, it's just, it has become his personality, it has become his way. But it has consequences. You know, it really causes suffering to many people. So there's a karmic fruit of that pattern. I know somebody else, and this is just from another side, from the side of practicing generosity, who's just this really generous person, and generous in a way that this person actually enjoys being asked to give. You know, if there's a need, there's a happiness to be asked because the quality of generosity has been so you know, well-established. And it's such a beautiful quality, you know, on the other side. What we do, the actions we repeat over and over again become habituated. Don't underestimate the power of small actions. Even small things that we do, we're planting the seed over and over again. You know, you might practice giving every time the thought to give arises. Now, how many times do we have generous impulses and then just let them go? You know, we don't act on them. We think it's unimportant, it's just a small thing. Uh, another more unusual example. This was... Um, when, when one of our Tibetan teachers, uh, Nyosho Ken Rinpoche, who's one of the great Dzogchen masters you know, of his recent times, 
Uh, he died a couple of years ago, and he had been sick for a while. And when he, when he first kind of went into his, his final illness, the decline, uh, he was in a hospital in Bangkok, and Sokni Rinpoche, who's you know, a younger, younger teacher and a student uh, of Nyoshal Ken, Sokni Rinpoche was on retreat, and he heard the news, but he decided not to go visit, you know, just then. And I was really struck by that. And the reason he said he didn't go visit just then, although he did later, was that he didn't want to be planting the seeds of breaking a retreat. You know, he just understood so well that everything we do is just planting another seed in a particular direction. And he felt that it was so important not to be planting that seed. Well, that was quite, it was moving to me because it was unexpected. You know, the conventional wisdom would be, oh yeah, sure, just you know, leave and go. We need to really stop and reflect on what seeds we're planting. We need to look at our own actions. We need to look at the motivations behind our actions. Where are they leading? And do we want to go there? Another way of understanding karma in our lives. It's the present karma, you know, of the experience of our present states. It's the impressions that come up. It's the unfolding of our practice. It's the development of our personality through habituated actions. So all of these are the ways we can actually see it and experience it for ourselves. The fourth way, and this is a teaching the Buddha gave to a lay person in the world who came to him and asked, why are there so many differences among people? And when we look over the, the world, there are so many differences. And so the Buddha gave a teaching on why there are differences. And when you first hear it, it may cause some this particular aspect causes some buttons to get pressed. But just, I don't know the right image. <laughs> Let go of the button for a few moments. Okay, so what did the Buddha say causes differences among people? He said, that harming people Injuring people is the cause of much illness in our lives. Non-harming is the cause of health. Gentle speech is the cause of beauty. Harsh, angry speech is the cause of lack of beauty. Generosity, great generosity is the cause of wealth. Stinginess is the cause of lack of wealth, lack of abundance. Killing, killing beings is the cause of being short-lived. Protecting beings is the cause of long life. 
The reason that when we hear this, it sometimes you know causes a reaction or causes buttons to be pressed in our mind is because this teaching cannot be understood in the context of a single life. Now, when we look around in the world, we see many good, gentle, kind people in very difficult circumstances, and we might see really miserable people, you know, in very good circumstances. So within one lifetime, it's very hard to understand that teaching, although to some extent we can. I, I don't know whether you've had this experience, but I have in my life that of noticing just as I practice more generosity and as I practice more kindness, really lots of good things seem to flow back in and it just becomes this cycle you know, of wholesomeness. It's not always, because there are other, other karmic forces from previous lives at work, and so we need that expanded vision to understand this teaching. But if we have some even tentative faith in the teachings of the Buddha, based on what we can experience here and now, and we can extrapolate, well, he was right about so much that we can test. Maybe he has something to say about things we don't yet know. If we can hold it in that way and understand that conditions have causes behind them, then we can practice those conditions, those causes, that will lead to happiness. And even if we don't necessarily believe in past and future lives, it's really not a bad thing to be more generous and to be more loving and not to harm and not to kill. Sometimes I think that the Buddha, (laughs) I have just this image of the Buddha there teaching as if to kindergarten kids, you know, don't kill <laughs> and don't steal <laughs> and be kind. It's so obvious. <laughs> but we have to really practice it because the habit patterns within us, as you see from just watching your mind over and over and over again, the patterns are so deeply rooted. Some are skillful, some are not so skillful. Our happiness depends on us. We need to say. A lot of care is needed not to misinterpret the law of karma, because this is a teaching that can be easily misunderstood, misapplied, Because sometimes people confuse it, confuse this understanding with attitudes of blame, of judgment, of indifference, of resignation. You know, we see somebody suffering, oh, it's just their karma. Maybe we get resigned to our own experience, oh, well, it's my karma. That is not what this is about. 
that's all a mis a misunderstanding. We can get caught in judging ourselves for our experience. Oh, I have this pain in my knee. I must have been a horrible person in my last life. You know, or, you know, more unfortunate than that is when we see suffering outside of ourselves and kind of just blame the victim. Oh, they deserve it, you know. That completely misses the depth and the complexity of this teaching. We can understand and we need to understand that all situations that arise have causes and conditions behind them. Including our own past actions. And still respond to present suffering with love and compassion. We can understand that there are causes and conditions behind suffering. In ourselves, in other people, in the world. But it's not just accidental. And that maybe even people's own past actions, whether in this life or some past life, have contributed to the situation. We can understand all that. And still, we respond to that suffering with compassion, with metta, with loving kindness. And we're blaming. That, that closes off the possibility for love. Oh, it's their fault. They deserve it. That is a total misapplication of this. And it really closes our hearts. You know, in this vision, in this huge karmic vision that the Buddha taught, we realize that we have all done everything. We've all been great benefactors to many beings, and we've all done tremendous harm to other beings. When we see this, when we see the the vastness and the magnitude of the whole vision of life and death and rebirth, and we see that over this, you know, immensities of time, we all have done everything and been everything. So then there's a real sense of understanding, of inclusion, of non-separation. Robert Thurman, who's a you know, great Buddhist scholar and uh, practitioner, he teaches at Columbia University in New York, he had a wonderful image for the interrelatedness of us all. He said, imagine being on a subway car with a group of people. And some of the people on the subway car are just sitting quietly reading a book or you know, having lunch. And other people on this subway car are violently angry you know, or depressed. Or Now imagine that you're with these people on this subway car for eternity. What's the, what's the response we have to the people who are suffering? Clearly, if in some way we can alleviate the suffering, regardless of what the causes are, 
if we can alleviate the suffering of those beings that are sharing the car with us, everybody's going to be happier. We'll be happier. The problem is that we think we're getting off at the next stop. You know, oh, well, it's, you know, they're miserable and it's their fault and it's... But when we realize we're all in this together, and we could see the whole planet like that, that everybody's happiness contributes to our own. It changes the way we respond. We understand the causes and conditions behind it. We understand that there are karmic patterns at work. And it's precisely that understanding which, which helps us alleviate those causes of suffering. There's a Tibetan prayer which says, may you have happiness and the causes of happiness. May you be free of suffering and free of the causes of suffering. So in this sense, the understanding of karma actually shows us the interrelationship of all of us. It's not a vehicle for stepping back. It's a vehicle for connection and for understanding. Now, when we understand that our lives and the lives of everyone else are the unfolding, the karmic unfolding, that certain actions bring about certain results, it changes our attitude, it changes the way we're relating to our own experience and the experience of others. There's much greater acceptance. We see, yeah, this is arising out of causes. And so instead of resentment against the suffering that we may be experiencing, or pride about the good things we experience, we're just in that place of openness, of acceptance. Yes, everything has its causes, has its conditions. Now the Buddha talked about the eight vicissitudes of life, the eight great changes that continually happen, of pleasure and pain, and gain and loss, and praise, and blame, and fame, and disrepute. You know, all of these changes that just continue, even for the Buddha himself. <coughs> Acceptance doesn't mean resignation. It doesn't mean endurance. It allows for the appropriate response. When we're in that place of accepting, of understanding, these are the karmic consequences. There are conditions behind this. We're accepting of it. Then we can respond, but not from a place of reactivity, from a place of wisdom. If we can really integrate an understanding of the law of karma into our lives, if we can bring it through our reflection on how we experience it in our lives and bring it down from kind of a Buddhist philosophical teaching to a 
connected way of understanding how things are unfolding, we begin to take much greater responsibility for our actions. Now, how often in our lives do we go through our lives thinking, oh, you know, this action is just not going to have much consequence, just a single isolated thing. We act as if things are in a vacuum because we've lost sight of the karmic power of each action. They bring results. What are the results that we want? What are the results that we desire? Now, it's so easy to see this when we look out in our society. We see it in terms of the environment. Actions have consequence. We pollute the air. We pollute the, the water. People start getting sick. Now, we see it in social issues. We see it in political decisions. You know, you do this, this happens. So when we look out in the world, it's easy to see this chain of cause and effect. Can we bring that same understanding to our own lives and to our own actions? That everything we do has consequences. It will bear fruit. This leads to a very strong and compelling interest in what we do because we see that with every action we are fashioning our lives. It's like sometimes I've had the, the image of understanding karma and through the power of awareness that each one of us is like an artist, each one of us is like a sculptor and we're sculpting our lives through the choices we make. Well, that's tremendous. You know, that we have that power to do that. It's not just predetermined. And this is one other understanding of the law of karma that I wanted to emphasize. It's not a closed mechanistic system. It's not like you did this and this is going to happen every one of our present actions feeds into the stream of the unfolding cause and effect, altering the stream. So everything we do in the moment is altering the unfolding as it goes along. We can cover unskillful actions with skillful ones. And it mitigates the potency of the karmic result. Just as an example, and this is an image which has been used a lot. You know, when you put salt in a glass of water, the whole glass of water becomes very salty. You put the same amount of salt in a pond, you don't taste it at all. When there's an unskillful action done in a confined, unwholesome mind, it has tremendous potency. The result is very powerful. If there's that same unwholesome action that's in a spacious, open, skillful mind, 
it has much less effect. And so the state of our mind in the moment conditions how the unwholesome actions from the past will manifest. Do you see the dynamic quality of all this? It's not mechanistic, it's not fixed. How we are in the moment is influencing how things will unfold. So I just want to mention some really good news, really good karmic news. The Buddha talked about different kinds of wholesome actions. And as, again, you probably know, when there's an act of generosity, that act is purified both by the giver, the wholesome mind of the giver, whether the gift was rightly acquired, and by the wholesome mind of the recipient. So that if we had the opportunity to give something to the Buddha, the wholesome consequences, the benefits of that would be enormous because it's purified by the purity of the Buddha's mind. So it said, you know, giving gifts to, to enlightened beings or the Buddha, hugely, hugely powerful. There's endless good fruits. Buddha went on to say that more powerful than making an offering to the Buddha and the whole order of enlightened monks and nuns, more powerful than that would be the mind, even for one moment, really absorbed in loving-kindness. Now, one moment of genuinely, deeply cultivating and feeling that loving-kindness metta for all beings is more powerful than even having given an offering to the Buddha. And he went on to say that many times more powerful even that moment of loving-kindness is a moment of seeing clearly the momentary arising and passing away of phenomena, the deep seeing of impermanence, you know, where we really are seeing for ourselves, where it's no longer theoretical, we are just seeing, moment after moment, how things are arising and passing, arising and passing. More powerful than an offering to the Buddha and the whole order of enlightened beings, more powerful even than the moment of loving-kindness. Why? Because each moment that we see that momentariness, the, the essential impermanence of experience, that's what deconditions grasping, that's what deconditions clinging. It's a doorway to freedom. And the karmic power of that is enormous. It becomes the source of so many blessings in our lives. So I would invite you to rejoice (laughs) in all your magnificent, wholesome karma. You know, of just sitting here day after day, just practicing metta, practicing the loving-kindness, seeing the truth of change. 
it brings so many blessings in our lives, both to ourselves and to others. The Buddha called understanding the law of karma the light of the world because it illuminates our lives. It's the knowing of what leads to suffering, of what leads to happiness, what leads to freedom. When we don't know this, it's as if we're just wandering around in our lives very haphazardly, sometimes happy, sometimes not, and not understanding why. Law of karma is the light of the world because it illuminates the paths. And then we have the power to choose. This is the great empowering of our lives, of our beings. So let's sit for a few minutes. generating infinitudes of wholesome karma from simply seeing how everything is arising and passing away moment after moment. May the merit of all our practice be dedicated to the welfare, the happiness, and liberation of all beings. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.